Hi, thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. Every week, I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, and I'm so excited you're here this week. You're listening to episode number 30. So this week, I am joined again by Ria Wong, my longtime friend and co-conspirator and multi-time guest on this podcast. Ria and I talk all the time about the work that we each do supporting and coaching small nonprofits in the areas of fundraising and strategy. And occasionally, we hit on a topic that gets us really amped up. This week's conversation is one of those topics. We are talking about the messy and complicated relationship between founders and fundraising. We found ourselves talking about the oh-so-common situation that many executive directors who take over from founders find themselves in in the early months of their new tenure. That somehow the robust funding base of donors and supporters that they believed they were inheriting is disappearing before their eyes. I work with a lot of founders, so I was really excited to talk with Rhea about how a leader can avoid this situation, leaving their organization with a donor base that is so attached to them that it is disinclined, shall we say, to continue supporting the organization once the founder leaves. It happens all the time. And we wanted to talk about what someone can do before it's a problem to be intentional about their fundraising base and building a strong infrastructure that won't collapse when they leave. The process of intentional fundraising begins years before a founder leaves. And Rhea and I have a blast discussing and debating and even sometimes commiserating in our memories of our own executive director days. This is a great, highly tactical, nuts and bolts conversation about founder syndrome, fundraising, and how to build a strong institution. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Rhea, how are you? I'm well, Brooke. Always fun to talk to you. I am so excited. Our last conversation about founders was like so much fun, and I love talking to you every week. And I'm excited that we decided to capture this ongoing discussion about founders. And today we are going to talk about founders and fundraising and some of the traps that we are, that we often recognize as founders get ready to leave. um, Mm -hmm. And they often find themselves in a situation with their fundraising they didn't expect to be in. Why don't you start by talking a little bit about why we are having this conversation? What's the the sort of trap? Yeah, well, I think the impetus of this is that both of us are coaching folks and some of the coaching challenges that we're seeing are from people who've taken over from founders who are finding it challenging to continue to fundraise at that level because of the personal relationships that a founder built in the beginning. 
I think yep. that's what prompted the conversation, right? That's right. Yep. I think it'll be instructional, you know, and both of us also work with founders who at some point. Well, and both of us are founders. Like, let's both just, of us are founders and have. I mean, let's just be honest. That's true. Lots of interconnecting points, but hopefully some of this can be instructive for those folks who are founders and who at some point will step away from their institutions. So mm-hmm. let's dive in. You know, I think there's some there's some attributes of founders and you and I have talked about this at length that are both extremely powerful and helpful when growing an organization, getting it off the ground and and scaling it that can ironically perhaps be less helpful when it comes to transitioning out of the role of founder. Yeah. I think that's a great irony, Brooke. And I think, you know, I I think about Marshall, Goldsmith's what got you here won't get you there. Every one of my trainings. (laughs) Right? Because it's like as founders, you start with this audacious mission and you get people to believe in it by the sheer dint of your charisma and your personal relationships. Because there's no there there yet, right? Like you, you can't point to a program. You can't point to metrics. People are investing in you and your idea. And so, and that's great. And there comes a point at which you may decide to leave the organization. And if you have not built up those relationships to be institutionalized or connected to other people aside from you mm-hmm. or created experiences for donors that make them feel warm and fuzzy about the organization, not just about you as a person, what happens when you leave is that a lot of these donors may fall off because they were brought to the table because of you. If you're not there anymore, they have no reason to be at the table. That's right. And so I think it's a really tricky piece. And I, you know, I can't say that I think I've cracked the code on it per se. I think there are something that founders can do to smooth the transition. But I think it's a challenge because ultimately fundraising is relational. Yeah. And so when that relation is no longer at the center of the relationship, what happens to it? Yeah. I think part of the challenge is. You know, fundraising is not one thing. And I know when I was working to build my skills early on as a fundraiser, I would go to, you know, workshops and trainings and I talk to people and I'm like, how do you quote unquote fundraise? And you hear fundraising is relational. And so I focused very much on the relationship piece, but that's only one part of what fundraising is. And I think in those early years or more precisely what it takes to be effective as a fundraiser, right? The relationship building part is part of it. And in those early years, I was so focused on bringing in money and scaling and bringing in money and scaling that pausing to be intentional about sort of the frameworks of fundraising, the other skills of fundraising that are relationship building, that are strategic thinking, that are fundraising planning that are network expansion, right? The things that undergird the success of their relationships. When you're moving so fast and working so hard and you feel, quite frankly, as most founders do in the early years, that it all rests on your shoulders. I think part of why you can have founders that get to this point where they're leaving and all of the relationships are with them is because they haven't had time, felt that they had time, taken the time to pause and say, what do I need to be doing differently? How can I be more intentional and strategic about my fundraising rather than just executing? Well, I I will say that I think this brings in one of my favorite analogies of hunters versus farmers. Yes, Most 
founders are hunters, right? They hunt big game. They're kind of loners. They're very nimble. They have big ideas and big visions and they have stamina and they'll, they'll hunt the big game. What you're talking about is farming, which is the concept of you know, creating the the growing calendar. I don't know. I don't farm, but you know what I'm saying. It's like <laughs> yeah. Creating the the schedule, the care and feeding, yeah. right? Like the consistency and the the practices and the habits underneath. And so, I think fundamentally, these these kind of two orientations are are somewhat at at odds. There, there's a tension there. And so, I think, I guess, what I would say is for a lot of founders who are hunters, the best thing to do is to have either your development director or your you know, assistant ED or whoever it is, who is a strong farmer, who is able to nurture those relationships such that when you are gone, the whole village doesn't suffer. This analogy is getting pushed very far. But the yeah, point- there, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we, we by our natures are are hunters and it doesn't come naturally to us to be like, oh, I should I should think about like creating a schedule to water the crops. Well here's what I mean, maybe you do. Known, I was gonna say you've known me for a long time. What I find interesting about the hunter gather and it and it actually makes me think of sort of one of the core principles that I sort of talk about in my training around scaling and preparing to scale up to that first million is about shifts in mindset that all of the tactics around fundraising won't help if you don't have a shift in your orientation to fundraising. And so I I don't know how common this is, but I am primarily a hunter when it sort of comes to, you know, growing my organization, but I am also someone who loves a good plan. And Mm. one of the best pieces of advice I got early in my fundraising, early in growing my organization was to build time into my schedule, even when it felt inorganic, even when it felt like, wait, I don't have an extra two hours this week, to be planful and to be intentional. Mm. So what was helpful to me long before I had a director of development, years before I had a director of development, was to carve time out of my schedule to be intentional about fundraising, to be intentional about program design, what sort of each of the core elements of growing my organization. And that meant that I was crafting a fundraising plan. I was saying, what are the five major donor conversations I need to have? And I was being more intentional about the mindset shift, the sort of orientation to fundraising. Before we got on the call, I was saying, I think one of the the most important things that a founder can do around fundraising is this shift in orientation. And I think of it as being a shift from I am my organization to I am not my organization, right? When you are a founder in your early years and it's just you on staff and you have a board who are amazing, but really it's just you, everything feels like it's you. You are your brand. When you are ready to step away, your organization will be far more stable and lasting if you are not your brand, you are part of your brand, you may be the face of your brand, but your organization has to be its own institution. And if you apply that mindset to fundraising, how does that change how you build relationships, how you share relationships? As you're talking, Brooke, the thing that keeps popping up for me is that it takes internal work, right? Because at the end of the day, I can say that it's an institution, but if I'm actually yeah. operating from a place of ego and 
like it feels good to be important, right? It feels good to be significant. And I think, I think a lot of funders in like their, like their deepest heart of hearts say that they want the organization to succeed when they leave, but maybe not like as much. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just like, I, I, I want to know that I was like kind of the best. Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's such not complex beings. <laughs> I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Right. But, but, I, but I think it takes a tremendous amount of, of ego management to also be like, Oh, I'm not like the most important thing here. Like I am not the beam that's holding up this whole house, which is like, easy in theory and really hard, I think, in practice. Because like, I mean, just think about this term founder syndrome. Like it was really hard for me when I got bigger to not get involved in program stuff. Because frankly, like I liked program stuff. Like that's why I got involved in the work in the first place, right? It was so annoying (laughs) to my team for me to be like, hey, have we thought about like doing lunchtime like this? Yes. And so I really needed to manage my own ego. And luckily I had people who were very willing to tell me to go suck an egg. And and I think that is really hard as a founder too, because it's like in, in your mind, you're just like, I'm just like in the trenches with you guys, right? Yeah. But the impact of what you say after a certain point is received differently. You're not a member of the team. You are the ED. That's right. So in terms of preparing, you know, if I'm a founder and I'm like, I'm not ready to leave, but I will be in five years, right? You mm-hmm. know, or I want to, irrespective of when I leave, I want to be building my institution so that it is not all resting on my shoulders um, mm-hmm. when it comes fundraising. How do I need to think about my donor relationships? How do I need to think about fundraising with intentionality so that I'm laying the right foundation? You know, it's funny, bro, because you and I, know each other in different contexts, but I keep the words network weaving keep coming up for me, which is like, how are you intentional about weaving this network of people together where you are not at the center of it? There will be some universe of donors that will only give because of you, right? Like my parents will give to whatever I do. Kangaroo saving, right? Fine. Yeah. Not because they care about kangaroos, but because it's me, right? Those group of people you probably will not retain. You know, and that's fine. It's the other group of people, like the people who are connected to the founder, but but also could be connected to the work. And then maybe like the third tier people who were brought in by someone else mm-hmm. got to know the founder, but like could also fall in love with the work that I think we really need to be intentional about. Like, how are we building relationships and connections above and beyond me as a donor or me as the founder, right? Like Can I connect them to like my program people? Can I connect them to a board member? Can I connect them to, you know, the development director? It's almost like um, in my mind, I'm just like having a visual right now, like octopuses. Like how can we just like suction the tentacles onto different parts of the, of the rock? So it's not just me. Yeah, no. And it's, you used the term earlier in our conversation, triaging, right? It's, Mm -hmm. and again, intentionality, that's sort of the, the bell that I like to ring. But when you are, looking and you do not have to be leaving your organization to do this just when you're looking at your supporters at your stakeholders and sort of the various types of supporters donors etc where are their points of connection who are the people and just be brutally honest who are the people that are just going to give to me and invest in them in one way and then what are the investments that i can start making now in these other people 
right? And like you said, who are the best connections for them? I really like that because it's something structured and specific that founders can do when they look at their donor list. I think one of the challenges is, you know, you get this advice about fundraising. You're like, it's relationships and make sure that there are connections between other people. And then you sit down with your list of donors. You're like, what am I supposed to do with these names? (laughs) You know, like, how am I supposed to cut this list? And how am I supposed to act differently or do different things with respect to the people on this list? So... I think even when you are a founder with the best of intentions, right? So like, just as an example, you know, we've seen this happen. You're a founder, you announce you're leaving, you have your replacement, you do like the whole dog and pony show, right? The new person goes to meet all the funders, yada, 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 right? Here's the mistake I think people make. The mistake that people make, I think, is often that they talk too much about themselves. And I think people talk about themselves because they want to like prove that they deserve to be in the seat. What they need to be doing is talking about their donor because their donor, their needs, wants, desires, dreams, hopes, values are not going to change because of who's in the seat. But it's your job as a person in the seat to figure out like, what is it that makes this person tick and how do I give it to them so that they continue on? It's not about me, right? Like I, I, I can sit and talk about my accolades all I want, but like then it, then I center myself in that relationship. We're not centering myself in that relationship. We're centering the work in that relationship. Well, it's also how you will learn earlier on who in your organization and what in your organization is an additional connection by listening to their why, by listening to their the mm-hmm. nature and depth of their affinity, what they care about, what gets them excited. You're like, oh, this is who will be another good point of contact for you because they similarly to you have this why, or this is, they can give you the information. My director of programs can give you information about this. My ops person or communications person can give you information about this. I also want to say, and then I have one question before before we wrap up, that that is something that can start long before the founder, right? Those listening and drawing the connections so that the feedback loop between the donor, the sort of feedback loop of impact, and I feel like I'm making an investment and I'm getting feedback about the nature of my investment, I'm feeling good, that stewardship doesn't just sit with the founder. And the earlier you can have that sort of stewardship loop, I'll call it, expanded, the stronger those fundraising relationships will be. So I guess my last question on this topic, founders and fundraising, founder syndrome and fundraising, is what's one piece of advice that you have? You know, we've talked about expanding the networks. What's one thing that you think a nonprofit leader who's like, oh, crap, I have not been doing this right. (laughs) What's something they can do tomorrow? So this goes a lot to one of the biggest failings, I think, in the nonprofit world, which is that we we charge people with jobs for which they have no training mm. to do. Yeah. And I think part of it is fundraising. Like, I yeah. didn't know how to fundraise when I got this job, or, I, you know, neither did you, right? <laughs> we figured it out, but it took us some time. I think part of that lack of training leads to insecurity and being timid, which means that you're not doing things like picking up the phone. Like I think so many people hide behind email, they hide behind text. Oh, but I send a newsletter, right? (laughs) Yeah. Get on the phone, get on a Zoom, go go have coffee with whoever will take the meeting with you. Because this is a people business and you're not ever going to raise money, like real money, like real, real money 
by sending out an email. I think that's right. And I will add my last piece of advice, which is invest in skill development, right? You talk Mm -hmm. about people having to do things and that's for the ED and for the folks on your team. People get really afraid about really spending money on fundraising training, on building capacity. You know, if you could spend, and you and I have talked with our coaching clients about this, if you could spend 2% of your budget (laughs) to raise 50% of your budget, would you do it? Of course, nobody blinks an eye. That thinking about real investments in building yep. fundraising skills and capacity, I think is, is really important. It's also just, I think about building trust. Like what would it look like to build trust with your donors? Because look, at the end of the day, if it's a loyal donor, they'll take your call once for sure, right? Out of courtesy. It's the second, third, fourth calls yeah. that will really be the test of whether or not you did the work to earn their trust. Yep. I love that note to end on. (laughs) As always, Rhea, it was just really great talking to you. I can't wait for our next one. I'm sure we'll think of a great topic um, in our sort of founder series. Can I add one last thing? Oh, please. This is my favorite quote from Oscar Wilde. It is absurd to divide people into good and bad. People are either tedious or charming. So in this life, it is a short life. People don't want to spend time with tedious people. Be charming. Be and the charming, kind of person. Listen. Let them it means seventy-five percent them yeah. talking, twenty-five percent you talking. Ask good questions and STFU. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, have a wonderful rest of your week. Talk to you soon. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Thanks, bro. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends. And if you extra liked it, I would be honored if you'd leave a review. I'd also love to share just a few free resources. If you're the leader of a small six-figure organization and you're ready to scale to the next level of massive impact... I invite you to check out my free training, Scale Your Small Nonprofit to Big Impact. It's a roadmap to getting the funding, staff, and support you need to hit your first million dollars. You can sign up at richiebabbage.com backslash ready to scale. And second, if you would like more leadership resources and strategies delivered right to your inbox, sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and a quote on a theme. That's all for now. Have a great week, and I will see you back here next week for more Mastermind.